You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. All right, we're sitting under some she-oaks blowing away with kids playing hide-and-seek in the background at Ningalo Reef, Ned's Camp. Absolute paradise to be out snorkeling this morning, looking at some of the natural beauty of the world. And uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat with Gary, who's a chemical engineer from the UK, who we met cycling around Australia. Welcome, Gary. Welcome. Thank you very much. And we've also got Nige, who's a lawyer and uh, has uh, quite a bit of corporate history with one of uh, Australia's biggest banks. Hi, folks. So, Gary, we're kind of locked out of the news cycle here, and uh, it's something that's taken a little bit to get used to, uh, not knowing exactly what's happening uh, in the the macroeconomic worldview, particularly when it comes to the big Brexit story. Uh, Please fill me in on what your lens has been picking up as uh, some of the big issues, uh, the the ramifications of Britain leaving the EU. Yeah. country waited almost two years to have its referendum, uh, finally got the chance to have a vote, and um, then we uh, basically uh, decided that we were going to leave the uh, European Union, which meant that Article 50 was uh, due to be signed, or that was as we saw it, uh, and probably what the rest of Europe probably uh, anticipated. Then we've now got... uh, Cameron resigned. Uh, we now got. To it's amazing. Unit. He resigned on that. I was shocked. Well, I think it was just uh, complete disbelief that the country did finally um, vote out. I think uh, all of London and uh, probably most of the uh, politicians were in favour of, uh, or thought the country was going to remain. I think it's um, you know the change was probably a bigger shock or a bigger step, a bolder move than uh, to actually stay with what was the status quo by then uh, and remain in the union. So, you know, he, he his job all, all of a sudden got a lot harder. He was having to lose face. He supported the remain issues. Uh, and if he was going to go back to Europe and uh, try to negotiate any new deals, probably all his uh, credibility had been greatly diminished. So um, he was gone. Internally, the Conservative Party came up with who they thought was the uh, best negotiator for the uh, for the job in hand. And the first thing I think uh, that uh, Theresa May decided to do was to postpone signing uh, Article 50 for a further two years, which pretty much puts it on the end of her or the Conservative period, just prior to the next general election. Well, that will be interesting. But the markets have spoken, haven't they? Well, the currency is a big one. I think the markets, um, as with any uncertainty, crashed. Uh, recovered very quickly, I believe, a uh, short period of time for most of the major uh, FTSE components. Those dealing with Europe maybe were more affected. The currency, however, has still remained very low against all the major currencies, uh, which, you know, I would have said really, uh, I don't know quite the, the finite parts of the currency situation, but... I would have thought that there was some recovery due there. It would probably make our exports cheaper. But um, at the moment, 
there's no significant change occurred to Britain and its uh, export thing. Why do you think the, the public uh, stood up and, and took this democratic stance to step out of the EU? It's a pretty tolerant country, really, all, always round. You know, it's obviously got the whole legacy of the Commonwealth uh, and uh, integration, various other things over the t- period of time since 40s, 50s, 60s, all the way through. I think they saw it as, uh, you know, they've given a chance and probably put it down to a failed experiment, really. More so, they were probably, I would say, the country or the older population of the country that probably invested more time and more um, money into the uh, into the country over their lifetime uh, had sort of said that um, they didn't feel probably that they were getting a good enough deal out of the, uh, the whole package, making a significant contribution to the, to the membership with only a small return. Obviously, that doesn't... You know, that's on the financial contributions, literally, as opposed to whatever goes on within the markets and uh, internal deals. But I still believe it's a probably a diminishing market to uh, to Britain and uh, the opportunity to look for uh, better partnerships or trade deals elsewhere. China, etc., um, would be a lot better as an independent country. Well, Nigel, as I look at this uh, as a, a bit of a satellite uh, view from, from here, in the uh, antipodes, having a look at what's happening in the EU, it really seems like uh, the the sort of social democracy that we've enjoyed here in Australia and some of those last remnants through Europe are being hacked away at uh, by any means necessary by these neoliberal forces that are are looking to... uh, strip back the public say in what happens and uh, social democracies and the ability of a mixed government having some public and some private operations within the major levers of an economy is there a role for it after 30 years of uh, neoliberalism i'm very skeptical about the role of the private sphere in governance of a of a community or of a of a of a country it was interesting, Gary, mentioning the view on trade prospects with England looking to further shores for, for better trade deals because, you know, it's been in, uh, something I've been interested in lately, the anti-democratic nature of, of the uh, trade agreements that, that countries are uh, entering into now. You know, one example is that, you know, we've seen w- in Australia is with, you know, for instance, the plain packaging legislation for... Um, cigarettes uh that was something that was uh, legislated for in australia and then you had cigarette companies looking to take advantage of clauses in free trade agreements that australia had entered into i think it was with singapore or hong kong where um, we'd entered into a trade a trade agreement that enabled a, a private company to sue the australian government if it enacted legislation which was prejudicial to interests yeah well that was the big a big court case, wasn't it? it? Was Philip Morris, I think, that took the Australian government to court? Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, I think ultimately uh, Australia will be successful in that particular case. It's certainly one in the first instance in the um, in the international courts. But there are other spheres where we, I think, will start to see the uh, the, the negative side of these trade agreements, where companies will start to take on the decisions that democratically elected governments have taken, for instance, in the area of climate change, and they will, uh, they will use the uh, powers they have to sue governments under these ag- uh, trade agreements to, to protect their commercial interests. But like the people of uh, Britain deciding to leave the EU, 
how hard will it be for countries to roll back uh, this TPP and the TPIP agreements that are coming through. There's already a growing uh, protest movement around these. And once people start to, to realise the, the ramifications of a country not being able to stop fracking because they're going to be sued in the international courts, how much legal entanglement is going to be wrapped up in these agreements that's going to make it very hard for countries to, to step back? Uh, there'll be significant impediments to unwinding these agreements. I suspect in, in real politic terms and maybe a government looking to step away from them will, will simply repudiate the trade agreements entire, that, that doing that may be simpler than um, trying to avoid the consequences of one, you know, one particular part of, the, of, a, of a trade agreement. But doing that will, uh, I think inevitably involve that government fighting both legislative uh, responses from the uh, the countries to which it had formally formed agreements with, fighting court actions, penalty actions in the way of tariff or, or other tax levies on goods that, you know, that, that Australia or any other country that seeks to repudiate one of these agreements, they would then find it very difficult to export in, in some areas. Uh, so there could be real cost to the economy but it's ultimately going to be a case of uh, that government trying to weigh up what's more important, the protection of those industries that may otherwise be penalised or uh, protecting, protecting the democracy. And I, th I think that's a question that is going to come up in the decades to come. And that's what we hope uh, future politicians are listening to uh, podcasts like these and, and starting to get their heads around the, this huge hole that's being dug and uh, hearing about these jurisdictions of international courts and particularly, well, not so much international, but the American uh, legal framework. They did something incredible a year or year and a half ago, I think it was. Uh, uh, there was uh, an American um, short seller who'd shorted the Argentinian economy and they'd defaulted on, on repaying him. And uh, he took it through the New York court system and the, the judge there said, look, Argentina, pay this, this company. And uh, <laughs> hang on a minute, this is the Argentinian government who made this decision and here's the American court system saying, no, you must abide. And it was a big shake-up for the overreach of American imperialism, if you like. So, uh, or, you know, on so many fronts, the, these pressures are, are starting to um, bear upon a globalised community. So, yeah, it, it's going to be very interesting seeing how Britain uh, wades through this. I mean... What do you think, Gary, uh, is going to be the, the way forward for the, the British economy now that, uh, you know, their age of the, the colonial era is, is well and truly uh, gone? So much of your manufacturing industry has uh, left its shores. Certainly the City of London is, in some circles, well respected in terms of uh, the financial sector, but in many others it's it's quite brutal and... Uh, you know, there's lots of uh, examples of overreach when it comes to uh, Iceland and Latvia and some of these countries that got taken down with the GFC. Um, who is globalisation good for? Well, uh, there's quite a few points there. but um, As always. <laughs> the first thing for 
Great Britain to do really. They need to uh, it, they need to get obviously around the table with Europe. It looks from what I can read, some of uh, the British politicians want to have a informal conversation with the leaders of the European Union to have a uh, feel for where we're going with whatever trades it will be or whatever negotiations they're going to set up. However, Europe, uh, it appears, are a lot less interested in doing this and just want to get around the table and uh, sort deals out because uh, once the Article 50 is signed, they've got two years to basically finalise the deal. Uh, that means there's a time constraint on it and obviously then if you're trying to negotiate against the time constraint, uh, it's probably going to be less favourable to the person that's come out, which is Britain, and uh, more favourable for the other However many members are left, because each one has to sign on the deal, otherwise it falls through, I believe. So they, uh, it's got to be uh, happy for all, all the remaining parties. So there's a lot of entanglement to, to unwind there. Yes, well, y you've had a, 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 in terms of uh, a globalised view, your, your particular work uh, has, has taken you to many countries. Could you fill in the listeners on, on what you do? Yeah, I, I'm a, a, what a, a contract chemical engineer. I've been working primarily in the offshore uh, oil and gas industry. Um, it's taken me from Jakarta, Manila, Singapore, over to uh, Nigeria, Trinidad, and most recently uh, offshore Brazil. Wow. So you've seen a lot of oil fields. Now, what's the word on the street? Uh, are we running out of oil or is there still uh, plenty of untapped areas? Well, the technologies is obviously finding more and more uh, ways of actually making viable deeper and uh, harder to recover uh, resources. The price of oil at the moment will restrict oil companies from making their uh, exploratory stuff and doing their uh, test drilling and stuff uh, until it becomes uh, more viable and they've got more money from their production to put into uh, uh, seismic again. Uh, there was talk of peak a while ago and hence it pushed it all the way up to about $115 a barrel. Then, of course, America's come across and uh, got their fracking underway and put that onto the market. They've signed a, a, a deal with uh, Iran to make them more favorable. They've got huge uh, reserves, uh, always been known. And to prevent them to get any of the market share, Saudi have not tapped back on their production and um, have kept supplying so that there is no market for the Iranian Iranians to get into. And hence, supply and demand has pushed the barrels down to about 35 recovered recently. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and this week we're having a uh, campsite chat with Gary, who you just heard, and Nige. And uh, we're all travelling around Australia, uh, living the good life somewhat. Uh, but, uh, Nige, as we travel through all of these different communities, as we're you know, we've got 48 hours, uh, three or four days sometimes. Uh, what have been some of the insights you've seen of, of people living on the land, living in their various communities? Has anything really jumped out at you of the Australian way of life? One of the things I've been most interested in and enjoyed seeing is the Aboriginal-owned businesses within, within their communities. Um, we've visited art centres, for instance, where they're more than just a, you know, a tourist operation where they can sell art to, to visiting, visiting tourists. They get young people in learning about their own traditional customs and artistic practices. Elders come in and have conversations with people. It becomes a community hub, and the revenue from that 
that business it goes to support the, the the broader community and so everyone feels a sense of ownership and membership of that of that business that that's been something that's interesting for me to see okay well uh, this is all very interesting within this globalized context of of how we uh, traverse these uh, traditional approaches to sharing this planet earth to uh, this new hyper traded risk uh, enhanced uh, style of of uh, market orientation and um yeah for us well, we're very interested in how we can find a balance between those two fields of sharing the earth and ensuring that uh, we have the leanest pricing structure and the leanest taxation system so uh, for me of uh, still spinning about what i learned about in port headland and listeners last week uh, uh, off air um, after the interview finished with Arnold Carter, I learnt that uh, there were a lot, a lot of negotiations that went on during that railway battle that uh, podcasters would have heard that segment of the interview uh, where uh, Fortescue and Rio Tinto wanted their own railway lines as well. And as always, they negotiate hard. They negotiate with the local council that if we're going to build this, we do not want this land we're building on rated. So they get a, um, a, a tax, uh, f- they get a free kick basically from the local community to, uh, to build these rail lines that the public can't use, that are, you know, 10 kilometre long train lines full of iron ore with the dust spilling over the communities. There's talk of uh, health concerns for the effects of this iron ore spilling into the community. And uh, driving around town, it was just uh, it was a wasteland, basically. There was none of the sort of architectural wealth we see in Bendigo and Ballarat and some of the, the mining epicenters of Victoria, where at least that wealth was reflected in, in some of the buildings in town. Uh, it was all very run down, but uh, I, I was uh, certainly surprised that uh, the community doesn't get much of a share of of that revenue and and then to top it all off not only they have you know uh, so many sacred sites and and so forth being encroached upon but uh, then the mining companies were throwing between 700 to 2000 dollars a week subsidy to their employees to lure them into uh, the Pilbara to live there so now they have all these fly-in, fly-out communities. The locals are not employed uh, at uh, any sort of reasonable level. And Gary, as I look at you, I wonder uh, what sort of effects you might have seen the mining bubble. What sort of effects has it had globally on some of the communities you've wandered through? Well, I can only really uh, refer to what I've seen here, really. You know, they've looked from Port Hedland, as you mentioned, but then if you go into South Hedland, uh, it looked as if the whole area was pretty much new. There was a whole infrastructure of roads and new towns. There was a library, new shopping centre. Heaps of vacant land just being squatted on by plenty of uh, well-to-do investors. Yes, yeah, there's a lot of uh, to-be-sold plots, which looked as if they anticipated uh, the boom to continue. And um, clearly someone would have got uh, caught short on uh, the fact that it did come to a bit of a halt there but I, I was hearing that um, it was record uh, figures still going through Port Hedland for export in so terms of volumes yep yeah and uh, it's the price that seems to be the issue with uh, the iron ore 
Well, apparently Port Hedland's going to be back in uh, the boom time in, in three or four years because oil and gas is going to be their next big hot topic, according to the Minister for Resources in WA. So, uh, yeah, Nigel, uh, we were going to talk about tax sovereignty and, and the so- this sovereignty of nations uh, within these bilateral tax agreements. So uh, what have been some of your experiences uh, working in some of the very highest levels of uh, Australian uh, corporate uh, structures? You know, it's been an interesting topic, hasn't it, in the, in the last couple of years with a lot of high-profile uh, media around the revelation of, you know, really uh, questionable tax practices of some of the biggest corporations on the planet. And, the, the you know, the stripping profits out of one country to repatriate them to a lower tax jurisdiction. You know, the, some of the, the, the practices are, are quite ludicrous, you know, when they're looked at, you know, from a common sense point of view, and they've clearly been put in place for the sole purpose of minimising their exposure to, to taxation. And um, I think it's a, it's a serious, it's a serious issue. It's, it's one that's going to play out for, for a number of years. And uh, you know, and I'm really, I, I think it's scandalous that the, the, uh, you know, the businesses that I've worked in um, have been quite high-paying, tax-paying businesses for the most part because of the mainly the, the, the countries where they work. They've been, you know, service-type industries, both working in uh, the, in the legal industry in Australia and also in in, in the bank and finance area. And so I know for that, for, you know, for those companies that I've worked for, they've been quite high tax paying, with significant operations here in Australia and, and in the United States, in the UK, all jurisdictions with, you know, fairly sensible tax regimes. But, you know, it's it's pretty clear that there are a number of companies out there who have got absurdly low tax payments, and and even in Australia, uh, when you look at mining companies, for instance, and the, the incredible, incredibly favourable uh, tax treatment that they they enjoy the ability to write off, you know, to write off their investment in, you know, quite speculative activities. Uh, I think is you got to question the, some of some of the, the way that those activities are uh, preferentially taxed compared to you know any other ordinary speculative entrepreneurial activity. Um, uh, so it's yeah, it's not just a global inter- or overseas problem. It's 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 a problem that we have here within Australia too, within the way that certain industries are taxed. I think. Well, thank you, uh, gentlemen, uh, both very much. Uh, There's been a couple of big stories out this week. Of course, the system of national accounts was out. Goodness me, I didn't get to talk about that. But uh, Australian land values only increased by $268 billion this year. And uh, interesting to see that last year's bumper number that I regularly quoted at 525 was actually upsized to $570 billion increase in Australian uh, total land values last, uh, last financial year. Uh, this financial year, due to the the falling turnover, it was only two hundred and sixty eight billion. Will we see prices start to drop? Let's let's continue this merry journey on the Renegade Economist next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Don't stop now. <laughs> so as always, I should never ever press stop on the recorder. Soon as we finish, Gary, we're straight into Chevron and their Gorgoran deal. Fill the listeners in on that. We've just mentioned that uh, in order to um, minimise their tax contribution, it appears that uh, what uh, they'd done is for the Gorgon project, they'd offset their loan uh, with their um, parent company in the US and uh, 
basically said that it was uh, not as profitable as it was. So what they managed to do was keep their contribution down for their year's production and uh, their amount of profit that they would, would have shown on their books was obviously greatly reduced because of these figures that they've transferred to the loan and repaying the interest on that figure. And all the big miners must have worked on a strategy to really scrounge down their declarable revenues whilst the mining tax was in operation. So it would starve Wayne Swan and Julia Gillard of the needed revenue to offset any of the political damage that uh, the, the threatened marginal seats campaign was going to do when the mining tax was underway. Yeah, and Nigel, uh, that's part of the problem with that whole Henry Tax Review and, and the Super Profits uh, Resource Tax. What was your take on it sitting up in Sydney? Uh, how was it delivered and what could be learnt? Well, I think the real problem with the then government's approach to the the mining resource rent tax is that they didn't properly consult with the community or with business the the legal fraternity they just uh, ambushed the Australian public with that uh, and ambushed business with it obviously Hen- it was part of Henry Henry's review but there were a lot of different uh, you know there were 120 odd different areas of tax that that Henry's review looked at and 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 this was one of them and and um, to seize on it and and launch it at the community in the way they did without properly explaining the the, the purpose of it and you know, to your point, Carl, giving proper examples of situations where companies have been able to effectively minimise their tax contribution and the light way they've been taxed compared to other f- uh, areas of economic activity. None of those examples were presented. So it was a poor communication exercise, a poor consultation exercise, almost non-existent consultation. I think what cons- consultation they did was after the uh, mining companies were already in an uproar. And they didn't bring the Australian public with them. If they'd done that first, then the mining companies wouldn't have had the political uh, power that they ultimately wielded in that case. It really was a, a wake-up call, wasn't it? Because the miners had a, a lot slicker PR. They they had some good ads that actually were interesting to watch in a way. And then, of course, the, the Labor government's uh, ads were, were the, the extreme opposite of the spectrum. They were just a horror zone that really didn't spell out just how much money was being made. And now we've got Gina Reinhardt uh, looking for some good PR buying up the Kidman estate. And uh, who knows uh, whether that's going to offset the, the bad PR for her trying to uh, frack places like uh, the beautiful Mataranka Springs. Uh, you just wonder uh, how how the the big PR game is played economically, and and somehow uh, there's a confluence between you know these trade deals we've been talking about the 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 PR games, and then underneath it is the actual economics of it, and uh, and somehow the community gets a little slice in there somewhere. But too much of the decision making is being made by corporates who are controlling our lobbyocracies. I no longer call them democracies. It's all about lobby money. And, uh, yeah, we just got to hope that uh, Lawrence Lessig and some of these others who are looking to reform uh, public finance laws in America and, and that echoing around the world will, will start to, to um, bite because I really can't see how uh, the, the democratic rights of the people is going to be represented when we have so many lawyers in Parliament 
who, uh, you know, it sounds like you almost need to be a lawyer now to read all the legislation that's coming through and hitting your desk day after day. But, um, you know, are we ever going to get those uh, old school street fighting politicians who would stand up and uh, uh, represent the everyday person? Yeah, that is an interesting question. There seems to be a, um, a almost a, a professionalised, you know, professionalism uh, of its own within the political area now, and and there's a focus on um, messaging and 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 PR over policy making. At the same time, you've had the public service being gutted, and you know, decades worth of of knowledge and and and, and uh, memory of how policies have worked in the past. Um, There are many things which get rolled out these days which have been done before, you know, and yet the, uh, you know, the old uh, old school policy wonks who might have been able to tell people, well, actually, this might not work or might be more difficult than you think because we tried it 50 years ago. They don't have that skill set left in the public service. And so there's been a loss of knowledge in in the public service, a loss of importance and the respect that um, politicians had for them. And at the same time, the, the the political back office has been taken over by these um, you know, spin meisters who um, you know, are looking to do their time and, and eventually take a seat for themselves in, in, in Parliament. Well, gents, thanks so much for joining us here on The Renegade Economist.